For January 21st, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 551. It would be a lot easier if Raiders of the Lost Ark were awful. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together, talking about the things we love. You know, we we love them, and uh, we love them more when we share them among each other. And we, we love them even more when they're under attack from, from slanderous voices in the critical community. Uh, I'm Matt Rather. I'm here here with my good friends, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Mr. Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hey, Matthew. And Mr. Jordan Stokes. Hello, Jordan. Hey. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, Jordan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thanks. That was terse. Um, that was a terse exchange between between the two of us. At least you're, uh, you're um, not as mad at me, as Indy's old flame was when Indiana Jones showed up in her bar after she just won a drinking contest. What? That's right. We uh, were moved this week to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark for a particular reason. And to go into what that reason is, Mark, I understand you were doing some podcast listening this week. Is this what, is this what you do when you're, when you're taking care of your son uh, and Jeopardy is not on? No, it's what I do when I commute, oh, which is also enough. what I did before the sun came along. All right. So let me set the stage for you here. And Well, actually, okay. Very briefly, the lead into this is that I was listening to a podcast, and they criticized Raiders of the Lost Ark basically for being racist and sexist. And we're here to talk about that because <laughs> there's a lot to say about that, uh, as well as the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark as well, which uh, I still enjoy to this day uh, for reasons we'll get into in a second. Okay. So let me... Set the scene for you. I'm listening to the Slate Political Gab Fest, um, which is, uh, if you're not familiar with it, I'd say it's decidedly like left of center, um, but features talking heads um, from mainstream media outlets like the New York Times and uh, I believe CBS News. Um, and at the end of their podcast, after they talk about the latest stuff about Trump and the shutdown and so on and so forth, and you know the the, the great political um, subjects of the day, they have this segment called Cocktail Chatter. And it's like they can either talk about an interesting book or article that they read or a a thought or concept that crossed their mind. And this time it was one of the hosts, uh, David Plotz, if you must know, um, who shares this little nugget with the rest of the panel and says that um, he introduced his 10-year-old son and one of his friends to the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. And this is how he criticized it. I'm going to quote verbatim from him. He called it a disaster. He called it um, the most disturbing racist movie seen in a long time. He said it was embarrassing, and he said that, thank God the world has changed. And he said this is a movie is a disgrace, and you should not show it to your kids uh, under any circumstances. And the reason for this criticism was um, basically twofold. One is that all of the ethnic minority characters in this movie are um, either evil or scheming or just in general subordinated to um, uh, the actions of the white people in the movie, the protagonists and the antagonists, right? Indiana Jones and the Nazis. Um, and the other one being that uh, the female character, or the only one of note uh, uh, in this movie, uh, Marion Ravenwood, 
um, maybe kind of gets off to a good start as being someone with uh, agency and control over the narrative, but then is reduced to a damsel in distress. And for those reasons, um, David Plotz of the Slate Political Gatha said this movie was awful. I don't really agree with that, but I think there's plenty of room for discussion here as to the interesting ideas that are brought up from the podcast. So, guys, what do you think? Is Raiders of the Lost Ark awful? Can I can I offer one, just one observation about this or one stipulation that yep. I think that, that we should make? Um, setting aside the judgment of whether the movie is an abomination that that you know should be should be burned in a in a cleansing fire or or should be eliminated from the earth in a, a year-long sandstorm the wrath of god being visited upon it <laughs> right um that he's not wrong like let's grant him that he's not wrong about the the you know savage uh characters of color who are buffoons or else uh hideous grotesques or else you know scheming greedy uh you know dishonorable folks right or else technically welsh (laughs) (laughs) uh and and that marion is not um really the engine that drives the the plot forward that she doesn't really have after after we learn of her prowess in in drinking games um unfair i guess because she owns the bar and has you know uh has just so much time to practice um that she uh she doesn't really accomplish much on her own steam in the story right like i i think that that I I think I want to take issue, and I imagine some of you do too, with the idea that this is a, an abomination that should never be sh- seen or shown to impressionable children or small animals or anything like that. But he's not wrong, uh, at least in in the the statement of some of the facts. I don't know, Pete. You sounded like you wanted to to jump yeah. jump in there. Can you give? I mean, can we grant him at least that? Well, I would say this: it would be a lot easier if he were wrong, right? But it would also be a lot easier if Raiders of the Lost Ark were awful. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that's and, and, and so there's this problem that's been presented to us, which is that and I guess to try to characterize it, I'll, I'll outline one way. But there's a lot of different ways to characterize it. One way is that the experience of having watched Raiders of the Lost Ark has offered various sorts of dynamics of of artistic engagement and entertainment and connection. And there's a lot of immediacy to the experience of of our memories of watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. And as much as the political judgment about its circumstances might seem to be an, an easy or simple thing to merely overwrite those experiences, I don't think such a thing is so simple. And so this creates a problem, which is, well, how do we articulate that? Uh, how, do, how do we come to terms with or articulate uh, what it is about a movie that can uh, deal with these kinds of different perspectives? I mean, while Mark was listening to podcasts, I was watching old school 70s BBC documentaries <laughs> and came across one where I was like, oh, man, this really connects with Indiana Jones and stuff. But I can hold up on that uh, to get into it too much until people have kind of gone around the horn a little bit and gotten a chance to weigh in about what they think. 
Also, I would weigh in. Uh, it's one more thing. Important to note, Indiana Jones is the reason there is a PG-13 rating, Temple of Doom in particular, uh, which is that there has always been a problem of showing Indiana Jones to children. <laughs> that, is, that is not a new... So that in and of itself is a particular axis, right? Which is that... You, uh, well, I might as well even crack into it, right? Is that the context in which you're watching Raiders of the Lost Ark is, is probably going to affect your value judgment about Raiders of the Lost Ark in a variety of ways. And one of them is that if you're showing it to a small child and there are things about it that shock you, then, oh, okay, that's a particular context. And it's interesting uh, how when you kind of make a proclamation to people, and which we do all the time, about this is my this is my experience of it, this is what I think, this is what I feel in reaction to this piece of art, how much of what you're saying is kind of demanding that other people come to you and agree with and concur with your perspective and your context in watching it, which is, is also a very tough thing to ask. That's really interesting. I want to say two more things about just sort of the record. One is that I'm pretty sure that all the people on the Slate podcast acknowledged having loved Indiana Jones when they were children. Right. That I don't think that, like us, they had continued to watch it more or less annually with the turning of the seasons ever since they were children. Like a lot of them had come back to it for the first time in a long time. And then the way that it came about initially is because one of them was had said, hey, my kids are old enough to show them Indiana Jones. Oh, this is going to be so exciting. Those movies are right. great. I wonder if this may have to do with the fact that Indiana Jones is now on Netflix. So he was like, oh, well, now I can now I can finally show it to them. Um, and the children are described as not of having not noticing any of the bad stuff. They liked it anyway. Um, and I think that, in a way, the conversation would be easier if the children had also thought it was terrible. But the fact that the parents now are watching it and thinking, yeah, and the kids are like, yeah, uh, get him, Indy. Ha Snakes are funny when you're scared of them. Um, actually makes it more of a problem again. That's really interesting, too. It, I mean, it raises one of my sort of personal pet uh, thoughts and feelings about kind of children in the age of wokeness, which is that there's a kind of conventional social theory uh, that you encounter all the time, which is that kind of children are blank slates. And if you don't present them with kind of uh, prejudices or both, or broad judgments that they won't arrive at them and will live a life of subtlety. Whereas I tend to think that children are in fact not subtle creatures very much at all and, and start from a place of making snap judgments and need to kind of develop mentally and emotionally over time before they're even capable of understanding subtlety. But that's a, a tricky kind of axis on its own, right? Is it that, is it, is it, it might even be that uh, comprehending what's, you know, quote unquote problematic about, uh, which I mean, which I, I hate that word because it indicates it might be a problem. Uh, which is not really that darning of a thing to say, right? Like, uh, you know, putting together this Ikea cabinet is problematic, right? Like it has problems associated <laughs> with it, right? Uh, what we're really saying is that it's wrong, right? When we say, or that it introduces, it, it creates what? It causes harm, uh, I think is what we're kind of, kind of trying to say. And if the kids aren't uh, operating on the level where they're able to comprehend what's wrong with it, that in of itself is also interesting, I think. I mean, do we want to... Oh, go ahead. Well, there, there's... I Yeah, just diving into the idea of problematic as a... As a question for criticism it's sort of like saying you know when i when when i was uh in grad school i taught 
I, I went to acting school and so I taught acting and, and voice and speech and all that kind of stuff. But I also, because my background is in English literature, I also kind of wormed my way into the English department because I wanted those, that sweet, sweet tuition remission. I wanted that, uh, that sweet, sweet, you know, per course fee. Uh, however many dozens of dollars I got paid for teaching for a semester. And I taught um, English literature, uh, the, uh, literature and composition uh, in a fun class, a required, a required class at UCLA. Uh, but I got to write my own syllabus, which was the, the fun part about it, which, you know, as long as it had the total number of papers and and um hit certain benchmarks we could read whatever i wanted so i i had a lot of fun putting that together i also had to take their teacher preparation um course uh for a semester at or for a quarter at ucla and i i feel like the people if you kind of stop at problematic if you trip over that uh description um you are falling prey to a very basic problem that was highlighted in the teacher preparation course that that I, I kind of want to explain a little bit because you're, you're making a positive you're making a positive claim you're making a claim that's not falsifiable um, so it's a bad thesis statement for your uh, for your essay right like the the example of this that was given by the the master teacher who indo- who indoctrinated us all into the you know dark arts of teaching was that you you will get you know people coming out of high school who read a poem and is like oh well when when um, the mistress's eyes are compared to the sun. This is an example of metaphor. And, you know, they, they assume the posture of, of a person awaiting a pat on the head. Uh, they want, you know, praise for, for this observation. And, you know, your, your uh, uh, answer is supposed to be, you know, very good, D+, plus, right? Because it doesn't... What, what do you make of that? What do you make of that fact? What's the what's the issue? And I think uh, what like you can identify all the tropes, you can identify all the literary devices, you can identify all the features of a work um, that you want, but unless you make a a still larger claim uh, about them, you haven't really added anything to the discussion. And you know, so so it is with the with the freshman composition paper that says this is when you use the sound over and over. This is alliteration. You know, time. Do you know when when uh, who is it? Marlowe or uh, or Sir Philip Sidney? Time drives flocks from field to fold. I forget whether that's in the the uh, the Passionate Shepherd or the Nymphs reply um the time drives flocks from field to fold oh that repeated f sound is an example of alliteration and i feel the same way about people who call things problematic and then kind of stumble on that and don't don't push on to a a still greater claim like it it's a positive claim that kind of masquerades as a normative claim or wants to be given with the the force of a normative claim because it has problems so what because it doesn't reflect our best ideals of what our you know, culture uh, is or should be. So what? You know, because it it um, it portrays this or that group or this or that person in a bad light, uh, or it falls prey to um, to patterns of representation that we associate with various kinds of of systemic oppression. So what? Right? Can like, I can I make a contribution to this discussion? Well, can, can, so what? <laughs> 
So when when uh, when Sala says bad dates, uh-huh. that is a spondy. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I want to to defend the concept of problematicness. I really mm-hmm. like that word and that concept, but I acknowledge that most of the time people use it wrong, which means that as someone who thinks that linguistics ought to be basically descriptive, I shouldn't like it. But I do anyway. And this is actually relevant to my larger point. To me, when you use problematic, it indicates that you have come to a a sort of a moment of undecidable aporia. You're not saying that the thing is garbage. You're not saying that the thing is great. You're saying that the thing is garbage and yet it's great. And that is your problem. So, for instance, the people on the Slate podcast didn't say that Indie was problematic. They said that it was horrible in every kind of way. Uh, and, you know, they they said that when they were growing up, they did not find it problematic. They thought that it was incredibly awesome. A lot of people will use problematic in the sense of, oh, this movie is problematic, therefore nobody should see it anymore. Whereas for me, when I'm going through and looking at a movie and I want to say certain aspects of it are problematic, exactly what I mean is that this is a movie I value and I want to be able to keep watching it. And yet these moments are so troubling that I can't recommend it wholeheartedly. I can't even maybe recommend it at all. And I'm sort of paralyzed by this doubt where, or not by this doubt, but but by this, uh, this conflict, this undecidability where I want to love it. And yet here are the reasons why I should not love it. And yet those don't outweigh the reasons why I want to love it. And yet somehow they do. And then I say, this is problematic, and I'm forced to stop. If the dilemma is real, I'm forced to stop right there, because it means that all that I can do is point to the problem and make sure that nobody else misses the problem and just goes on loving it uncritically, but also that nobody misses the problem and just says, oh, this is garbage to be totally discarded. And I think the fact that sort of, I think that the most ethical thing I can do after identifying something that is actually truly problematic is to shut up and stop talking means that when I use the term right, assuming that I'm using the term right at all, which might be too much, but when I use the term right, I do exactly the thing that Matt gets annoyed at people for doing when they use the term wrong and just want a cookie uh, because both of us have to stop talking. It's just that, you know, we have very different reasons for stopping talking. You're saying you have to stop talking and start thinking, I guess, right? Or start, start examining or start listening again. Not really. I mean, I'd be very interested to listen if someone wants to say, no, this isn't problematic. This is actual garbage or this isn't problematic at all. It's, it's just to be enjoyed. It's more that to pay full attention to the movie, to do justice to it as a text, you have to pay attention to all the parts. And when you pay attention to these parts, you realize that there is a problem and you can't resolve the problem. So all you can do is label it and experience it. I think that's what I want to do. I mean, if other people might contribute things to the country, to the conversation, that would make me move on from that point. But I've decided that I can't really resolve this either way. And I just need to live there in the moment with that problem. That's now, great. Is it? Oh, oh, sorry. sorry right. Yeah. I, I, no, Pete, I, I, I want to come in with a, with another whack at, at the whole thing. So why don't you go? I'm interested in a couple of ideas around this, because one is that it seems like it's greatly diminished your enjoyment of what you're doing. Right. It seems to cause you pain to be like, oh, and, and I feel that way, too, about this movie in particular. It's like there are moments that I, mean, I would describe them as cringy, like creating this like sense of like, oh, right. Like, oh, man, like, why did they have to put that in there? Right. Please skip it and move on to the stuff that I like. Uh, and I mean, there there are 
arguments against Raiders that are holistic about the whole way that it's conceived. And then there are arguments against it that are kind of about specific portrayals and scenes, which the movie could very well proceed without and are a product of kind of, you know, uh, just having them uh, having them be better, not being a priority at the time. Right. Like like that for whatever weather. And, and I guess this is sort of what what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the bigger question, which I can, again, hold on to for the moment. But it's it, it's notable that it's it's makes it less enjoyable for you, because why are you watching the movie if not to enjoy it? And so if you reach this place where you're in a state of inner conflict and you don't know which way to go on it, that in of itself could arise, could create a, a conclusion because it's made you not like the movie and not have fun. And then you don't want to watch it anymore. I guess would be one way of thinking about it, right? Um, well, well, sure, but I think that if you've tipped all the way over that uh, that threshold, then it's no longer problematic. It's just bad, um, yeah. and you can say like, "Yeah, it's a great chase scene," but I, you know, I wouldn't want to watch the movie anymore. I think that kind of characteristic of problematicness is that the badness is moral and the goodness is aesthetic. So if I could just be a sociopath for a minute, I would love the movie. Um, and if I was completely incapable of experiencing joy, then I would just point out the things about the movie that are bad. It's not like it's uh, half ethically good, half ethically bad. It's the places where the moral badness threatens to overwhelm my enjoyment of it, but doesn't quite succeed. And there, like, yeah, I guess it means that I'm enjoying it less. I can't have the same kind of untroubled enjoyment of it that I did before I started thinking about it. And yet I think it's characteristic of that kind of moral pain that we don't really want to be rid of it. Like having noticed yeah. that uh, that it's maybe not so great that the uh, the one person of color in Raiders who is good is played by a British actor, right? Um, especially considering Britain's colonial past in Egypt, and there's all kinds of ways you can go with this, right? Uh, I don't want to just go back and be ignorant of that because yeah. it seems like it would be wrong to be ignorant of it. And I feel like if I point it out to somebody, although I might be yucking their yum, I am in a certain sense doing them a favor because we all want to know when things are morally bad, don't we? Right. So so and this is interesting because it's the other side of it. Right. Which is OK. On one hand, the encountering this impasse that you've described, uh, I'm just trying to think of different ways to to progress or resolve the impasse. Uh, I'm on the leading tone and I want to get to the root. Right. Because <laughs> that's but, just what I want to do. So so Pete Jordan's, Jordan's argument is is for a kind of negative capability. Right. The Jordan Jordan's argument is to sort of let the tension be and accept it that the the final state is a kind of moral aesthetic and uh and hedonic detente right and right. that that you're not there there isn't you can't sort of push through to a kind of resolution or untangling of the issues, which which is something that is interesting and that I that I kind of appreciate as a as a sort of nuanced and very mature uh, sort of thing. There there are other aspects of it I want to go into, but like, do, do, does it make sense that why maybe you can't push through to resolution? I don't see why you can't. You can certainly push farther, but you have to want to. Like it's the this is we're doing this in our free time, right? Like we don't have an obligation to do any of this. Right? So it's like, well, if the issue is that I've hit this impasse and I don't know or feel like I can do anything, it's like, well, there's a bunch of things that you can do, right? One of them is that you could see the movie. What because because what is the move? This is I think this is I, I definitely have to break into a little bit of what 
I was thinking here, though, Matt, you had a point that you wanted to jump uh, well, on. I, I, I did. Us. Yeah. So let, let me say let me say three things, because I've kind of rethought or at least revised my earlier position about problematic. One is that, yes, it's a straw man. This is not actually the kind of this is not actually the claim that was made on the podcast that is, you know, quote unquote, under discussion right now. Although, like uh, on this podcast, all things and all times are always already under discussion. Um, two is that. uh Two, two is is um, what I just said the the kind of aspect of negative capability that that Jordan brought up, and that that's not necessarily a bad thing. It reminds me of uh, how the kind of the the people who stand for Hamilton um, were just outraged that anyone would would criticize it on any grounds, kind of when it was around the time it was winning Tonys. Um, and that, like, there was actually a very good article, as it happens in Slate, uh, by uh, Isaac Butler, who is, a, among other things, a drama critic, about how actually the, the serious academic criticism is, or, or the cultural criticism is a good thing, um, because it means we take it seriously, in the same way that, like, the works of just, say, Shakespeare are endlessly argued about. The, the third thing is that I think there can be kind of an implicit, when, especially when you're talking about the dynamics of of uh, of racism, say, or other forms of systemic oppression, um, I think there can be a point to saying something is problematic. Uh, in that, like the the claim, the the thesis statement is um, is I w- I want you to notice something that is. Uh, that is hidden by the uh, hidden by the cultural um, reluctance to look at uh, uncomfortable truths or something like that or sort of I, w- I you know I want to the 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 normative claim or I guess the falsifiable claim is is people shouldn't be treated this way or or actually that like this is an example of treating people wh- whatever we should think of the work this is an example of of treating people in a bad way and and doing some kind of harm now what what the remediation what the the uh the answer to that harm should be is is you know still an open question at at that point but i don't want to i guess i don't want to write off all of the the people who are problematic who who call things problematic and then drop the mic as a straw man just just the lazy ones yeah Um, well okay but that but yeah with with that i guess um with that, I guess I, I, I cede the floor. Well, okay. So, should we, before we move on for, for this, should we perhaps, uh, it is noticeable that, and this is perhaps the point, partially, that this claim that's come forward has reframed the conversation around Raiders of the Lost Ark. And maybe, maybe we could pull back a little bit and at least say, okay. Um, so, for example, when preparing for this podcast, I looked up other reviews online that criticized the Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Lost Ark for being racist. I found one on what Bayflix.net. I don't know if this is a credible site, but he's like, look, I watched Indiana Jones. I lost Raiders of Lost Ark when I was younger. I liked it a lot. I'm watching it when it's older. Uh, it's given me a lot of angst now to see how cringy and racist it is. I'm lowering it from an A plus to an A minus. Right? Like, which is very different from saying, like, I'm watching it now and it's super cringy and it is awful and terrible and nobody should watch it ever, which is, I think, not an exaggeration of the of the claim that's being made here. Right. Which is OK. So Raiders of the Lost Ark, if we want to say it's not awful, what's not awful about it? What are some of the good things about Raiders of the Lost Ark? Or great things even? Uh, 
the the I think the performance of Harrison Ford. I, well, I mean, I think a, a number of things. The the way the story is told, the performance of Harrison Ford, the kind of the dynamism and excitement of his uh, physicality and his kind of swashbuckling. Right. So performance, physicality, you could even say the composition. You could say that Spielberg is a master of these action sequences and that some of the action sequences in The Raiders of the Lost Ark comprise the blueprint for hundreds, if not thousands, of subsequent action sequences in other movies. That it is tremendously influential in how it portrays adventure in film uh, and that – no, and it does this because it creates effect and you have a response to it. And yeah, so inf- influential yeah. because it's so successful. Right. And so it might be worth watching because it is successful in accomplishing these things. It's play of light and shadow is is often called into into color. Right. Like the way that when Indiana because there's this sort of dual axis in the Indiana Jones movies of sort of the darkness of the unknown and versus the darkness of the evil. That these are sort of two different kinds of darknesses, that the good and the evil descend into the unknown together. And there's the sort of fear of the unknown, and then there's the fear of the evil. And then both of these things, you, what it often comes down to is that Indiana Jones has to be less afraid of the unknown, or he has to hate the unknown less than he hates the evil. Uh, and 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 and, uh, and this is why you sort of close your eyes and avert your eyes out of respect for the Ark, right? You'll face up to the Nazi and punch him, but God, you have to show a little bit of humility, right? The penitent man will pass, and so on and so forth, right? Um, which and okay, so uh, that that the way that that's portrayed in kind of cinematic quality is notable and exciting, and also this is one of those kinds of movies. Like I sometimes think whenever I watch like The Expendables, I'm like, oh, you know, this movie. Is, is it's I think people would describe this movie as like a lot of other movies, but there are actually not that many other movies that really exist that are just like it. Uh, even something like, you know, uh, Demolition Man, right? Or, or Terminator 2, right? It's like, oh, those movies are just like everything else. Yeah, what other movie is like Terminator 2? Commando, maybe? Like, there's like five of them, right? Like, they, there are a lot of attempts, but um, in that sense, it's sort of like what you can get from Raiders is not really all, it's not really easy to swap it out for another movie that's just as good. Uh, yeah. and, and, I, and Let me that's add something of, yeah. as well. While we're on this, and you probably want to keep moving on, but it's important to add here is that one of the, the key strengths of Raiders of the Lost Ark is it's actually like non conventional and to a certain degree farcical narrative. Right. Where like these crazy things happen. Um, Dr. Jones starts out as very secular. He witnesses literally the power of God um, happen. Uh, well, actually, he gets close to his eyes, so he infers that it happened. Um, and <laughs> then at, 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 he, he, but at, at, at the end, the government throws it into a warehouse to be hidden and forgotten for all time. And l- along the way, like lots of crazy madcap things happen. Um, it's not at all a straightforward hero uh, saves the day, accomplishes the big thing, you know, hero's journey, takes home the boon and becomes a master of two worlds at the end of it. And I think it is relevant um, to frankly, a lot of these discussions, the problems of the movie, because it is so fantastical and because it has this like um, uh, all of its seriousness is undercut by its wackiness in a certain way. And that is a huge strength of the movie. Definitely. Yeah, it, it does a blend of action and comedy and horror and whatever all else really, really successfully in a way that that few movies do. I would not say it necessarily yeah. blends romance quite as well as some of the other things. But honestly, <laughs> like the the actors have chemistry together and that'll that'll forgive a multitude of sins. <laughs> Good point. Also, while we're talking about things that it do, does well, like the music. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. What, Jordan, go into yes. it a little bit more. Uh, it's really good. <laughs> it's, 
that, that's maybe best, all that really best needs. march of the what, what year do you have to go to where you can say the Raiders march from Indiana Jones land and uh, from Raiders Lost Ark is the best march since X, like 1965, 1960, uh, is, when's Bridge on the River Kwai, I guess. Is the oh, question. OK. When is that? Let's see, because uh, that's a pretty freaking great march. Uh, I was going to say the music band, 70, oh. 76 trombones in the marching band. OK, OK. Wait, so 57 the, for Bridge on the River Kwai. What's what, up? When was um, when was Empire Strikes Back? Was it before or after Raiders? Because the the Imperial March sounds is pretty good. Oh, it's after. So that's oh, no, it's before Empire is oh, 80 before. and Raiders is 81. Yeah. Although, it's honestly, both. you know what? I don't know if Raiders is the best March of 1981, because you know what else came out of 1981 is Stripes. And the March from Stripes is badass. <laughs> We should share that in the show notes, because even if you don't see Stripes, you should know the march from Stripes. But I mean, mean, so I don't think that there's anything groundbreaking about the score to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it's John Williams, pretty young John Williams at the top of his game. There's three big tunes that you'll know from it. One is the Indiana Jones theme. One is the love theme. One is the Ark music. All three of them are just flawlessly done and also flawlessly deployed. It's not like they're good pieces of music. In the abstract on the CD, they're all over the score and they do their work really, really well in every scene that they're in. So this is, again, it's a matter of craft to a certain degree. And you could say that even if we didn't want to show the movie to children, we would definitely want to show it to budding film composers or directors who want to make effective use of music in their films. But, you know, I just I couldn't let it slide when we're talking about things that are that are good about it. It's really one of the best in that light. So I guess I'll jump in because Jordan brought back again this idea of context. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this documentary, which I think I've talked with you guys also about it because it's been all in my brain. Uh, So there's this 1972 series from the BBC called Ways of Seeing, which is kind of a response by a writer named John Berger to another uh, documentary series called Civilization by a guy named Kenneth Clark, which attempts which attempts to critique the ways in which the Civilization series uh, frames the Western canon. And the first episode of this is about 30 minutes long. You can watch it. You can find it in various places, including YouTube. Um, it talks about the the ideas of Walter Benjamin, right, which we've talked about him before on the podcast occasionally, kind of an early 20th century uh, I think he was early 20th century, like sort of Marxist, sort of Marxist philosopher. Um, and the idea that he that is introduced here, which I thought was really relevant, was that I feel like that art, right, that art that is sort of praised. And he's talking in particular about kind of museum pieces that uh, sell for many millions of dollars for being authentic. He talks about how there are museum pieces that sell for many, many millions of dollars because they are authentic. And then there are copies of them that are worthless and that we live in an age in which any piece of art can be copied over and over again and redistributed and recontextualized in a whole bunch of different ways. And we shouldn't just sort of gloss over the fact that this fundamentally changes our relationship with these pieces of art. And he talks about how the kind of commercial success uh, or the commercial viability of an individual piece of art as a collectible interferes with understanding that the piece of art doesn't exist in only one place and only one context. Uh, so like you, maybe when you paint a painting, it sits 
It belongs in a museum, right? It sits in the museum, and and if you want to look at it, you have to go to the museum or you have to go to the church, right, where it was hung over the altar, and you have to experience it in the context of that church. He talks about how it's maybe painted in perspective, meaning you're meant to stand in a specific space and look at it with a specific eye, but then once you start copying it, moving it around, that changes the relationship with, with, with the piece of art. And I'm thinking that maybe it might be worth it to think about this idea with regards to blockbuster movies where the amount of commercial activity that has surrounded them and the millions of dollars and the and this kind of millions of viewers and the kind of boffo cultural status that blockbusters has have not has blockbusters has no status anymore blockbusters is gone blockbuster video but uh, but blockbuster movies have this status that is connected kind of discursively to their commercial success uh but um, you're not, but Indiana, but Raiders of the Lost Ark doesn't exist in this sort of single wooden box in the government archives. It's not like Raiders of the Lost Ark is in a sort of numinal space where we all have to go visit it on its throne and we all watch it and regard it. No, like Raiders of the Lost Ark gets copied a lot and it gets shipped around a lot. And you might be watching it on your phone. You might be watching it on your TV. Uh, and that the circumstances under which you watch it are going to affect in a really kind of basic way, what's going on and what you appreciate from the art and what your reaction is to it is, is kind of the proposition that's being made. And, and I, and I felt like this felt really relevant in the, in the sense that, um, I think I said to you guys that it's like, well, if Indiana Jones is awful, there's something about this podcast that's making it awful, <laughs> which which I think is one way I, I framed it, which is a sort of glib way of saying that, you know, talking if you're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark on a politics podcast and you've watched a copy of it that has been beamed to you for like, in this case, the purpose of entertaining your children, right? Like you're not really going into the theater in 1981 and sitting there and watching it for the first time. And this works both ways, because on one hand, it means there's no real total excuse for the idea that, well, the Indiana Raiders Lost Ark is a product of its time, right? And uh, and it has these sort of old-fashioned uh, stereotypes in it and these kind of racist caricatures in it. and But but it was made, it's from 1981, right? So it's fine. Well, yeah, but the copy of it you watched on Netflix was generated now, right? <laughs> like, so it wasn't made in 1980. Like, yes, it was, the original movie was made in 1981, but you've been, you've been copying it and reproducing it and interacting with it now, which kind of affects uh, the sort of um, location of these things in the culture. Uh, but also this idea that, like, your copy of Raiders and my copy of Raiders, even if we're watching digital copies on the same phone that are identical to each other, other because of like the sounds around us and the experience around us are going to be different. And I'm just interested in thinking that, yeah, these, this is sort of an easy idea to accept, but it's, it's been, it's tricky to accept that it can make something that one person really sincerely engages with and thinks is great. And another person sincerely engages with it and thinks that it's awful. Like that vast of a difference might be accountable to a phenomenon like this, of the context in which you were watching it. Uh, and, um, and particularly context of which you're watching, like the copy of it that you have. So, like, I'm, I'm imagining like a well, big this, AV like, part. In, yeah. In this particular case, right? Like showing it to children to whom you have, you know, a duty to sort of care for them and educate them, or to you know bring them upright somehow. Your children, right? Like, uh, it gives up a it gives a different sort of moral valence to the judgments that you make than just being you know, uh, just being there for your own enjoyment. Right. And, that, and, and I would add to that, and I add to that as well, like, you know, talking about educating your children, giving them good values in the context of a left of center podcast, 
Um, and also in the context where like that particular host is known for like his his slate signature contrarian takes um, and wants to just kind of like say something that's a little bit outrageous. Um, so yet to Pete, your point, yes, the context in which um, Raiders is declared awful is very important. The, One other thing to add right. to this while we're talking about like this interesting idea of the of the copies is that like my first exposure to Raiders of the Lost Ark was a literally like a second or third generation VHS dubbed <laughs> of this movie. It was like totally washed out and probably helped make it more powerful because it was so freaking violent uh, for like the six year old me that saw it for the first time. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, I, I think you can't discount um, the kind of the performance formative aspect of like people saying things on on podcasts for entertainment value that you know would not necessarily they, they wouldn't necessarily swear to in in a court of law uh, i have no i have no idea what you're talking about Pete. that <laughs> Matt, Paul that walker is, is the greatest <laughs> actor of his generation paradise. Writer, spirit of vengeance is a masterpiece <laughs> Chad, chad milton's paradise loss is the unsurpassed and unsurpassable greatest work of literature in any Dilda language Swinton should be encased in loose sight in the smithsonian wait what she already is oh never Mind. Right. <laughs> Actually, I don't care I mean, for macaroni and cheese. <laughs> oh, you get out. <laughs> that's well, that's over the line, Jordan. That's, uh, <laughs> macaroni and cheese is problematic. Well, that, so Pete, I, I want to give a, I want to give a little bit. I want to be a good uh, freshman literature and composition teacher mm-hmm. to you and say, sort of, so what? Like, I'm, I'm down, I'm, I'm down with the idea that like we watch movies on phones now and it's different and stuff, right? But, but the, I, I guess the the do we now is all criticism now does it all need to like take into account or like to be to responsibly disclose like you know i saw this on a uh on a dvd screener on a you know 45 inch tv as opposed to your 32 inch tv and that makes the that that is the thing that makes all the difference in the world right like there there almost never has been a there almost never has been a kind of pure experience of of cinema, even just because you're sitting in a different seat in the theater, right? Well, yeah, yeah. I, I think that because that would that would be the modernist view of this, right? Is that okay? We should collect all the takes of all the people who watched this movie in all the different ways and sort of combine them into a kind of cross referential library of analysis of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And have sort of a vorticist poem that's half in, you know, uh, Chinese ideograms and half in ancient Greek that kind of connects all of the uh, <laughs> ideas that are present in all these stakes. Um, and, and then uh, and we should publish it in, in uh, New Directions Literary Magazine. Right. That's kind of like the the modernist approach to this problem. But I mean, I mean, uh, just as an example, I think I've talked about this before. I saw where anybody is anybody here on this podcast there when we went to Sunshine and we saw Temple of Doom on the big screen. Back in like 2004, um, where uh, I guess not. I think Blinky. I went with Blinky. Uh, maybe one of you guys was there for Superman the movie. Uh, I think rather we had been there for a Taxi Driver when we saw that in the oh, art no, house. I, 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 I thought. I remember. I, uh, I thought we. Yeah. I thought we saw Raiders of the Lost Ark together uh, in a big screen. But not, okay. at the, not at the not at the sunshine. Yeah. Well, I just I, I saw Temple, Temple of Doom. Doom. Well. Temple of Doom is a movie that I felt like the difference between seeing it on a TV and seeing it on the big screen was really notable because of certain specific shots that don't work uh, because the when the aspect ratio is changed uh, because of like the way that it portrays particularly the, the environment. But but I guess yeah I guess what I'm saying is not necessarily that you you can. It's two things. I guess there's the inside out and there's the outside in, right? The outside in would be, okay, 
we live in a situation wherein, you know, a particular sort of criticism in art has a whole ton of leeway because it might be related to any sort of a wide variety of contexts. And there's no one authoritative context where you can absolutely say, uh, well, no, actually, I will show you an observational data that says that you're wrong, uh, right? Because it's like, well, I might be watching it for a different reason, or I might be feeling a different way when I watch it, or I might be speaking, I might speak a different language. Like, there's no authority, like, in order for there to be such a broad proliferation of takes of such heat and intensity, it must then be the case that there really is no intrinsic authoritarian, authoritative way, authoritarian, right, authoritative way to say that a wrong take is wrong. Uh, because if there were, it would be in use, <laughs> you know, and, and and I guess what I'm saying is this sort of the authority to declare that a take is wrong is a positive authority that only exists insofar as much as you can assert it over other people through either sort of discursive means or force. Right. Like uh, and, and that's sort of the discovery that everybody is making all over the place with this constant with the sort of decay of networks and the growth of kind of two way communication in mass media and social media, you know, this idea that mass media isn't one to many anymore, because that gave us the illusion of this kind of modernist authority. It's no, it's many to many. And so there's no real way in saying saying any one of these particular takes is wrong. But you can have your your particular it also means that your own particular take doesn't have to be dictated by the takes of other people who might have different contexts from you. And it, I think it's worth identifying if you feel pressure uh, because of the intrusion of someone else's take into your conception of something, it's worth interrogating not just why you might be wrong, but also what might it be about the context of this other person that's different from yours. And I guess there's the default assumption would be I'm identifying that this other person has a context that's different from mine. Therefore, they have a more valid way of talking about it. Therefore, I'm going to go with them. Eh. Right. It's like, well, identify your own context and the fact that you're living your own life and you have your own experiences. And the point of watching these movies is that they're supposed to be fun and enjoyable and give something to your life. Right. And and, and stand up for your own feelings sure, a little when, bit. When, right? when, like, we're ta- when we're talking about Indiana Jones movies, absolutely. When When we're in the political realm, you know, definitely stepping back and kind of letting someone else have the floor is – is a, a move that I would advocate at at under certain circumstances, right? Well, under certain circumstances, but like if you, I don't know. I feel like there's been no, there's been no. Here's a hot take for you: there has been no piece of general advice that has been more thoroughly disproven as worthless than the sentence "Don't feed the trolls." It is utter garbage. <laughs> the you know what happens when you don't feed the trolls? They win. <laughs> they control the public fora. They say whatever they want, and they create the narrative. Uh, you you have to engage. Uh, if you care about the outcome, right? Like, uh, but, right, right, but right. Except, well, the only the only thing worse than feeding the trolls is someone else feeding the trolls. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, me- anyway, I meant more. I- yeah, I meant more in the the context of of the kind of the national shame that is the the picture of you know dozens of male lawmakers deciding about reproductive coverage under the ACA and things like. Oh that. yeah, yeah. It's no, like- stepping back is a really important skill to have in your life, and knowing when and how to appropriately utilize it is really important. But, but you shouldn't start from the supposition that you. You, your your opinion never matters. Yeah, yeah, like nobody should feel that way. But I feel like we're getting we're getting blow, blown off course. Jordan, Jordan, yeah. help us and tell us why we're wrong. Well, no, I, I just wanted to uh, first to try to get a, a slightly simplified version of what Pete is saying. I think I understand it, but uh, but you didn't come right out and say this. So I want to make sure that as I start to argue with you, I'm not putting words in your mouth. Basically, your point is that when you hear these people complaining about Indiana Jones. You want to say that, first of all, they're not wrong. 
there, here are all these things that they've pointed out, certain factual claims about the movie, such as uh, Marion ends up being a damsel in distress a lot. And yet you want to say that the context that you come to Indiana Jones in, which is just for fun, basically, the ways in which it is fun, means that those things that are wrong with it don't really matter all that much. So while you might be willing to say that, yes, if you want to be a woke dad, then Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark is terrible and you shouldn't show it to your kids, okay, fine. But if I want to be a nostalgic guy who enjoys the movies of his childhood, there's still many things that are wonderful about Indiana Jones. And for me, in my context, it's fine to enjoy those things. Is that basically it? I would I would make one kind of really important adjustment to it which is that i don't really think that the um i don't think that the difference of perspective can be attributed to intentionally in that way so much uh i don't i'm not just saying that okay because you are a woke dad you experience the movie in a different way i think it's more along the lines of like the actual experience of the movie is different when you saw it you felt it differently and that's something that exists and is sort of I, we could observe it and confirm it. Right. We could we could interview you on the spot and you could pull you and say, like, well, what did you think? It's like, well, that was really difficult and painful. And so you get like a one. Right. OK. And then you talk to somebody else and you're like, OK, well, you saw Nina Jones. What do you think? And you're like, oh, that was really fun. You know, I, I didn't really say any problem with it, uh, whatever, you know, and I give it a seven or an eight or nine. Right. And, right, um, and then those things are visceral and are in that sense kind of beyond criticism not that the film is beyond criticism but your response to it is just your response to it yeah, yeah? i think that, i think that when you when you assert the moral authority to attempt to invalidate the subjective experience of a piece of art of another person you're not you're you're dis, you're intermediating the art in a way that kind of uh falsifies the experience um, okay. and, and this is, yeah, yeah, that's, then this just goes back to why I would say, well, you don't have to stop here. You can interrogate it more and more, but that's, that's what I would say, uh, is that, is that you, again, it, it would be easy if everybody could just hear, oh, the movie's racist and then not like it. Um, so yeah, anyway, I've, I've sort of said, I've sort of said my piece on that. Yeah. All right. So let me, let me ask you this. Yeah. Do you feel the same way about someone who just, just up and likes Temple of Doom? Uh, oh, do I feel the same way about it? Um, I think I think that you're I, I mean, I think so. And my fault is, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what's tough about the question in the sense well, of because yeah. the general consensus that I heard about Indiana Jones when I was in college, when we would people sometimes sit down and watch them is that, oh, well, yes, let's watch Raiders and let's watch Last Crusade. But Temple of Doom is embarrassing and racist. Let's not watch that one. Oh, interesting. No, I mean, my because, my, again, this is my experience. Very different. My experience growing up was that Temple of Doom was like brutal and gruesome and and kind of miserable. And the kids that I knew whose parents had allowed them to watch it were had other indications that they were maybe kids that were watching things that they shouldn't watch. So like my my subjective experience of that is that like uh, uh, Temple of Doom. Yeah, Temple of Doom is like is like way I feel like Temple of Doom is way more morally objectionable than Raiders in a lot of ways. Uh, but again, it's like, well, when that's an oversimplification, in what way do you mean morally objectionable? Right. Like yeah. what's it actually making people do that? And that's that that thing we tabled a long time ago where we could actually delve deeper into it. But, yeah, you know, no, I've never I don't think I've ever encouraged anybody. I've never encountered anybody who said, like, well, I don't want to watch Temple of Doom because it's the bad one. Oh, they said because of the bad one. They don't think they don't like it. They don't think it's good or they think it's too violent or they think that it's too like gruesome or horrible. But I don't think I've ever encountered somebody being like, well, let's watch the Indiana Jones movies. But my morality dictates we can't watch the second one. 
Uh, okay. Well, yeah. so let's uh, let's take a, a cut deeper because yeah. the, the thing is that if you have this defense to say that when you experience a movie as just aesthetically good, that's kind of unassailable on some level. Like if that's true, it has to apply to really everything, right? So Birth of a Nation. This is different from Raiders of the Lost Ark in that actually when Birth of a Nation first came out, a lot of people had big problems with it. There were protests in the street. So it's not like it's just a product of its time in quite the same way. But I think we can probably presume that at least one person who went and saw it in the theater just liked it because it's the craft there is very good. You can learn a lot about editing, for instance, from watching mm-hmm. Birth of a Nation. And yet we don't show it to children. Right. It's only something that you experience Ooh, in the oh. context. What's that? Along those lines, a better uh, example of this might be Gone with the Wind, which people like uh, adults in 2019 will still claim as their favorite movie. Right, right. So, uh, so this is this, and, and yeah. it's like and it's much more kind of like you know um, uh, aesthetically pleasing to a modern uh, movie viewer. Rise of the Birth of Nation is you know silent and black and white and so on and so forth. Yeah. So this goes back to the part where I was trying to advance the problematization question earlier, and I would I would and I've written about this on overthinking it like years ago. I'm sure the piece on retrospect is terrible, but um, is that I would I would definitely make a distinction between the e- extrinsic. Uh, extrinsic factors that are related to the moral effects of a movie or the, the, sorry, not the moral effects, extrinsic effects of a movie that are ethically oriented versus things about the movie that are intrinsic, right? Or that are just, that are, that are, um, not demonstrably, uh, having a consequence. So, so for example, like birth of a nation, I would personally object to Birth of a Nation because it's a pro-Confederate movie and my family fought for the Union and they're the enemy and they deserved to be shot, right? And as such, like, Birth of a Nation is propaganda for an unjust and terrible rebellion that resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, I don't necessarily object to the content of the film itself as being on a throne somewhere exuding moral evil. I object to it because I oppose its interests and I oppose the representation of the interests of the people who made it. Uh, And I don't like them right and and i don't like what they're trying to do uh and and so and i and i think you can make a line from birth of a nation to a clear extrinsic agenda of what people in the real world want to have happen uh now you could also probably make the same thing about raiders of the lost ark and in that sense i would probably have to say like you know what i don't think i would back up raiders of the lost ark so for example uh, Birth of a Nation, right? So those of you who are not familiar, is we're not talking about the new Birth of a Nation. The old Birth of a Nation, like it, like invented parallel editing, right? They still show it in film schools, uh, you know, to people in like textbooks or even in colleges, at least pieces of it. It invented like a whole co- bunch of really important editing concepts that and storytelling concepts in movies, but it like portrays black people as terrible and as kind of worthy of domination. Uh, and it, yeah. more, even more so, it portrays the Ku Klux Klan as awesome. Yes, it portrays the Ku Klux Klan as awesome. So it has like an extrinsic effect in the real world where it's like, oh, well, I don't, I don't, I don't favor the Ku Klux Klan, right? Like I oppose the Ku Klux Klan. Now, would I then say like we should, and then it's like, okay, well, when, when this goes to the fact of what copy of Birth of a Nation are we talking about? Are we talking about the copy that's like in the theaters and we're watching it and it's when it came out? Are we talking about like a copy that's like on a VHS tape that's in a school library and like children are watching it? Are we talking about like uh, people who are watching it? Is it being, did it get put on Netflix for some reason? And it's like, take that off Netflix, right? And you could say, you could say, it's, what I'm saying is that, that um, if you're digging into the problematization, 
Uh, I would even go. Let, we can even take it to with the Raiders Lost Ark. It would be like the repatri the sort of repatriation of relics that have been taken by Western archaeologists and kept in Western museums to the countries from whence they were taken. Right? Is that something that you favor? And I was like, yo, and yeah, I think so. Generally, I mean, not all the time, but like, I mean, because not, not everybody has a claim to everything. You have to evaluate the individual situation. But like, uh, yeah, sure, you know, like. Uh, I don't think that I would back Raiders of the Lost Ark so much that I would support it being shown at a rally for, like, um, you know, retaining the Elgin marbles, right? Like, did those ever go back, by the way, the Elgin marbles? Don't think so. I think no. they're still where they where they were. In, but if the in if London. the British if the British Museum threw a big party and they played Raiders of the Lost Ark to celebrate the fact that they have the Elgin marbles and the Greeks don't, I feel like that would be objectionable and i would object to it on <laughs> that would be kind of amazing though yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 and it's in like in much the same way um sala right being played by john rice davies and I mean, i'm not saying that i would always be okay with everything under every other circumstance but i'm trying to articulate a connection that goes beyond just the notion that these things are like bad in the abstract to the fact that they might actually create bad things in the real world so like john rice davies not being egyptian is problematic Right. Because this is a part that's an Egyptian. He's being played by an English person or a British person. Is he Welsh in real life, I guess, because of the Y in his name? He's got um, a Reese. I think he counts as Welsh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think of him as, mo as identifying. <laughs> that, that, was a, that was a problematic take, by the way. <laughs> he's Gimli American. Right. Uh, you know, he's a slider. He's always a slider to me. Um, but like, what's the main problem? There are two problems with John that that Sala, role of Sala not being played by somebody who is from Egypt or has some sort of related there's there's two one of them is that's a job that could have gone to an actor uh who was actually from egypt and didn't and there's money involved and there's people trying to make their livelihoods and there's the uh, and there's this sort of uh this is the sort of like crazy rich asians problem solution where it's like oh like look at all these actors who are getting work look at all these creative people that aren't being appreciated uh, and, and they don't they get denied jobs because of this sort of default racist assumptions of the movie-going audience, which then also are mutually reinforced by the default racist assumptions of movie producers and and uh, other sorts of creative uh, and, and business-minded people. Okay, this is a problem, right? Like, representation is an extrinsic problem and an intrinsic problem, because the other problem is that people who watch this movie don't get an accurate idea of, like, the perspective or humanity of people from Egypt <laughs> or Peru or anywhere else, right? Uh, they, they, they barely get an idea of what it's like to be a university professor from Connecticut from this yeah. movie, right? Like, barely. But can but, I cut in, though? Yeah, yeah sure. Because I think that that's, that's a, a separate problem, and I think it's a really interesting one, and you express it well, but... The kind of enjoyment of Raiders that you were trying to defend was not an instrumental one. Was it like a purely aesthetic one? Yeah. We're taking all of those things that might happen in the real world, setting those aside for now. You want to say that if somebody watches Raiders and just purely enjoys it, we don't have the right to tell them that considered on that basic aesthetic level, their experience of the film was wrong. That you might I, have to yeah. say, well, go on. You can tell them. It just doesn't matter. Like, it's not right. <laughs> like, you can say whatever you want. I'm not saying you can't say it. I'm just saying yeah, so that you're that's wrong. The, that's the flip side <laughs> of your argument, right? Is that once you've made it, you're not allowed to make it anymore because it involves telling somebody what to think on that level. But uh, I want to say that something can be, and I think that 
trivially, we will find these examples, something can be morally wrong enough that to enjoy it on a purely visceral level, just because you weren't thinking about those things, is actually wrong. Uh, I'll, I'll go one example even more extreme. I think since we're dealing with Indiana Jones, we're allowed to bring up Nazis. There was a film industry in the film in the Third Reich, and they made out-and-out anti-Semitic propaganda, where the point of these films was that Jews are evil. So let's say that you've got somebody who went to see one of those movies growing up, and was excited by, say, the way that the fight scenes worked. And they want to defend their experience of those movies and say, oh, well, it's just like the fight scenes were great. I like them because of that. I'm not thinking about these things that you're bringing up. I'm just thinking about the fight scenes. I want to be able to say to that person, you need to think about this outside of the purely aesthetic. It's not okay for you just to enjoy it, even if you enjoyed it as a, as a child. And I'm not sure that Raiders of the Lost Ark falls into that bucket, but I think that if we want to say that no things fall into that bucket, you end up with some really counterintuitive results. Like, for instance, although you might say that all the Confederate statues need to be taken down uh, because there are active white supremacists who rely on them for stuff, if somebody turns to you and says, look, when I put the Confederate flag on the, the window of my pickup truck, it's not because I'm a racist. It's just because I'm a proud Southerner. And you can't look into my heart and tell me that it's not just because I'm a proud Southerner. You then have to say, yeah, you know what? You're right. Uh, you are a proud Southerner, and that's why you're doing it. And I can't, in a certain way, that that experience is irreducible to you. And I feel like that's something that I would need to say, look, even if I choose to believe you and say that you have no malice in your heart, you're just doing it because, because you're proud. That's not an okay thing to be proud of. And you need to take off your sort of aesthetic uh, you know, they live glasses or put on the, the non-aesthetic they live glasses and recognize the actual harm that this is, that is being done here. And you can't have your pure disinterested aesthetic experience of certain kinds of text. Right. So, and what I would say to that is that your success in doing that is not going to be related to their experience of the art and is going to instead be related to your ability to assert authority because we live in a in a sort of post because postmodernism is accurate about the fact that unless you have the authority through some other sort of means to make that sort of assertion to that person, I mean, you can say it and it's probably a good thing to say, uh, but and you're doing it for an extrinsic reason. But like, don't expect being right to matter all that much. Because, you know, it's because it, we don't live in this situation where the art in every context can be reconciled and made correct, uh, you know, and, and I guess that's what I'm sort of saying is that there's a limitation in uh, or there's a kind of contextual limitation in what you can expect to accomplish by doing that. Could you can you go to that person and say, like, you're wrong, you're bad, change your behavior? Sure. You can always say that. Like, but but why would they listen to you? Well, because you have ethical reasons to do what you do. Awesome. Great. Um, but if you were then to say to the, if you were to say, you know, if what we're saying here is that if you were to then say uh, on a podcast, look, looking at the Confederate flag doesn't give give me any feelings at all because it's bad. Right. Uh, you know, and then and, and, and then you say and then we're like, well, yeah, sure. You know, uh, I, I get it. You know, and then but should you expect that experience to be the same as the other person's experience? And I would say, no, you shouldn't. They will have a different experience, even if they do what you ask, even if you're right and in telling them to change their behavior. And even if they then change their behavior, you haven't really changed what experience happened to them. And and, and I think that that's sort of what I'm getting at, which is that if you watched Indiana Jones and it was awesome, you can't undo the fact that that happened. 
Uh, and yeah, that's a problem. Propaganda works. It convinces people of things. And it's really hard to counteract. And just saying that it's wrong doesn't always work. Um, you have to come up with some sort of sort of argument, right? Like, well, see, what I want to do, Pete, is I want to take those precious, shiny, golden childhood memories that they have, take them away from them, and put them into a museum. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that Indiana Jones comforts us with is that those people get mowed over by boulders and jeeps and or the spirit of the living God anyway. So they'll <laughs> Well, right. That's, I mean, it's, we're, we're sort of wrapping up, but like th- this is a movie like uh, Paradise Lost, the unsurpassed and unsurpassable greatest work of literature in any language ever. Um Raiders of the Lost Ark actually has God as a character, <laughs> right? And that, like, uh, one of the one of the few non-annoying things um, that uh, what's his name Stanley Fish said about Paradise Lost that is supremely useful in understanding it is that in order to understand Paradise Lost, you have to remember that God is God, and you can't that that a lot of your arguments about point of view and stuff don't apply because God is God, and uh, this this is true that like God does render. Um, some sort of justice upon the upon the people uh, whose experience may be what it is, but who are wrong about things, and that that does uh, <laughs> maybe aff- uh, affect um, the kinds of criticism that that we should bring to bear on this movie, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe. And if, by the way, if guys, if I've said terrible things in attempting to, like, you know, tiptoe through the work of Walter Benjamin, I sincerely apologize. No, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't think you have, Pete. I, I just, I, the, the, the w- while granting a lot of the things that you say are true, I, I think what you've done is kind of reduce the space. I mean, that, that your, your argument has scope conditions, right? That, that the space that you're that you're contesting the battlefield that that uh, your point of view is won and lost on is the battlefield of of individual subjective experience right and that yeah you can't the, and and I, I I guess I wonder sort of what is the point what do we gain. Um, it's got him opening up a whole a whole can of worms, but whatever. It's an extra. It's an extra long bonus episode. You don't even have to be a member of Overthinking It to get it. What What do we gain by defending that individual subjective experience um, against the encroachments of bad podcasters who 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 want to tell you what your experience is or should be? What are you asking me that question yeah, now? Or I, I actually no, episode? I am. <laughs> I know. Like, tune, tune in next week, like the old serials on which uh, Indiana Jones is based, right? Like, tune in next time for an exegesis <laughs> of the. Uh, no, I mean, un- unless you feel like you need twenty, you need twenty minutes, right? Like, since since it has no since poetry makes nothing happen. <laughs> to, to, right. to borrow uh, and and a little bit the which is false by the way uh, or the experience of poetry makes nothing happen which is also false but like taking that as read um, if you were to grant that like w- what do we get by uh, granting that everyone's making nothing happenness is uh, d- defended against attacks from the outside. 
Uh, well, I mean, it definitely the I mean, the, the extrinsic goal that Benjamin would have had is is one of like social liberation, which is ironic because we don't see this as a socially liberating argument. But the, the idea that you don't just sort of take for granted or the idea that when somebody is asserting their authority over you in terms of what you feel about a piece of art, they are first and foremost asserting authority. And we shouldn't necessarily ascribe to we shouldn't necessarily just gloss over the gap between the act of asserting authority and the participation of the art by allowing uh, the kind of con- the sort of leap in logic that would cause us to believe that, like, well, this person is right about art and there f- and this person is right about art. Uh, you know, in in a way that is like testable and provable and correct, right? Uh, and, and missing the fact that actually they have an agenda and an ideology, and and they are trying to get something to happen. Uh, the conventional argument is that uh, by freeing ourselves from this idea, or at least by recognizing the sort of seeing the strings for what's happening, it allows us to escape certain sorts of kind of more nefarious kinds of social manipulation. Like if you don't. So let's take back. Let's go back to Jordan's example of like the anti-Semitic Nazi movie. If you think that people like movies that are good and don't like movies that are bad, and you like a movie, therefore the movie must be good, right? Like, and it must follow that people who say that the movie is bad in a moral sense are wrong. But, right, if if actually like the morality, uh, the sort of larger morality of your life has kind of more complicated relationships with the art that you watch than merely the idea that, OK, well, this thing uh, is associated with badness. And therefore, if you like it, you are bad and, and sort of if and only if in that cycle, if you separate the artistic experience from the moral authority and reckon where you don't even have to separate it because it's already separated. But if you acknowledge the separation, you can go if you were to, for some reason, watch a movie like that and find yourself enjoying parts of it. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. Right. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that you should you should probably be critical of anything that it tries to persuade you like like you, you can watch Indiana Jones and be like, well, this part is wrong, but I like the movie in general. Um, if you believe that that Indiana Jones in, in exists in this numinal space and has a sort of singular moral judgment associated with it that is a sort of independent from people's arguments about him, then like if you were to enjoy it, it's I think it's hard to to keep that kind of uh, irreconcilable conflict in your mind. But I think that if you are are willing to accept that, social authority and kind of um, that that the ways in which art works in an authoritative manner uh, have these layers of complication to them uh, and these sort of layers of subjectivity to them. I think it helps you navigate a bit better how to respond to something that you find affecting. Uh, that, that's what I would say is that it's a it's a guide for what to do if you see something that makes you feel something. Um, and and what's what does that mean? Right. Should like if you see fireworks and you're really moved and all of a sudden you're full of patriotic verve. Right. Like recognize what's going on. And and uh, and you shouldn't need somebody to tell you, oh, the fireworks are bad in order to question whether kind of unflinching patriotism is the right thing to do all the time. Right. Like that shouldn't be necessary. 
but if you believe that there's an if and only if relationship between morality and art, uh, where then it would be necessary. You would need to be told that it is bad. You would need to be brought to believe that it is bad in order to act in such a way in relation to it that the that the sort of wider morality is properly considered. Anyway, that, that that's that's my kind of like. I, I got it. In, in other words, if you see something, say something. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mark, did we solve uh, Indiana Jones and the problem- problematic fave for you? <laughs> I think we may have problematized the problematization of Indiana Jones. Um, and then also, in all seriousness, like that, like five minute segment on the Slate podcast was like such an inadequate destruction and like, uh, uh, you know, a uh, uh, criticism of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was just like, I, I, I'm so glad that we had this opportunity to really unpack it and unpack the unpacking. We just really opened that lid and the spirit of God just came out and uh, filled us all. <laughs> I, <laughs> don't, well, don't look at it, Mark. At it. <laughs> That's why we're a podcast, just so that you can't it's look so at it. It's so beautiful. Don't show your baby. <laughs> well, that's I. I, uh, I am very comfortable uh, saying that uh, the slate uh, political gap fest is bad, and this podcast is good, is superior, and that you know that whatever your experience is, that's uh, absolutely true. Uh, so, thank you very much for podcasting with me, uh, Pete, Mark, and Jordan. Thank you for listening to it, and uh, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Until then, you can visit us on the web at Overthinking It where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably probably doesn't deserve I don't know. I guess God is a character in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I won't watch any movie unless there's one God that talks to another God, both of whom have names, about something other than immortal. (laughs) 